Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. For years, people like me and Neil have bemoaned the fact that England's privatised water industry was used like a cash point by international private equity firms. Vast fortunes were made by financiers in Sydney, New York and Abu Dhabi as water companies ran up debts of more than £50 billion, paying huge dividends, over £60 billion to date, to their owners. True, some Brits did benefit, but mainly the CEOs of those same companies, rewarded for being willing accessories to plunder. Plunder that, needless to say, will have to be paid for by customers already facing soaring bills elsewhere in household budgets. But it's not just the financial mismanagement we need to worry about. It's the state of England's waterways, many of which are routinely polluted with sewage and are now drying up thanks to years of corner-cutting abstraction by the companies. Our guest this week has campaigned fiercely on these issues for years and he's now leading an all-out, head-on assault of the water industry. I refer to none other than that great fisherman, rock musician and all-round Irishman around town, the great Fergal Sharkey. Hello, Fergal. Well, that's uh, incredibly <laughs> glorious of you, Mr. Jonathan Ford. Obviously, I deny all of those scurrilous accusations. Good to see you guys again. Good to see you. Fergal, I thought we'd start by talking about a, a long article you wrote recently in the Daily Mail, where you said the southeast of England could simply run out of water. Do you think it really will come to that? Well, the simple truth of the matter is, as you personally highlighted, there has been a colossal failure of regulation and oversight, both politically and the regulatory basis of the water industry, that has created a vacuum and the water companies have gained the system to their benefit. Now, I know a lot of attention has been put and a lot of scrutiny on sewage provision and the state of the sewage system and the state of our rivers. But in reality, there's a much greater threat and it's running in a parallel and again being caused by the same neglect in terms of investment, underinvestment, and if I might say so, actually a very interesting way to interpret your duties in terms of running a well water company and where to make and invest the money that you have been afforded by the regulator and by what you're allowed to charge your customers. So whilst the sewage system is failing, it's now quite clear water supply to London in the southeast is heading into the same crisis point and according to the National uh, Audit Office, we are now facing a massive shortfall and indeed a deficit in water supply in London in the southeast. 25 million people are now getting perilously close to running out of drinking water. So what do the companies say, or particularly Thames Water, which is obviously London's supplier, say when you put this charge to them that we're going to run out of water within a year or three they again now say, oh, well, we've put together this organisation called Rapid, and that is now comprised of the Water UK, the Environment Agency, off what, the Drinking Water Inspectorate, who knew there was such a thing. And it's again a bunch of people now scurrying about like cockroaches, simply because somebody's walked into the kitchen at three o'clock in the morning and turned on the lights. 
<laughs> and we all know, of course, that there's a, never only one cockroach in the kitchen. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's recently come to my attention off what, at the end of last year, wrote to the water companies, reminding them of their statutory obligations to build, operate, and maintain sewage systems capable of dealing with whatever amount of effluent was being put into the system. You've had the money for 30 years. You've clearly not spent it on the sewage system. Question becomes, what happened to the money? Yeah, it's a good question. There's also a legal duty that they have under all the legislation that the water companies have to provide water to every household in England and Wales. It's not a kind of best effort, sort of, if we've got it available, we'll give you as much as we can. <laughs> they are under a legal obligation to do it. And if your National Audit Office report is right, and by 2040, I think, is the date that they're talking about, the water system in the southeast will be so stressed that they will not be able to supply people. They're breaking the law. For me, they're breaking the law on so many, so many levels. Clearly, they have to go through this five yearly cycle where they sit down from base zero, forecast, work up population increases, building increases, liaise with local authorities, with the National Audit Office, the Census Office, and come up with justifiable, robust population growth figures within their service area. From that, calculate the level of demand increases they're going to see. They've got to come up with a debate, a discussion as to where they're going to source that water and build all of that in and any and all investment needed to meet those forecasts into their pricing proposals. All of that is then scrutinized by the regulator in the shape of off what? And apparently a bunch of very clever people comes up with a price of water to charge the customers, which allows the water companies all of the investment needed to meet any growth in forecast and demand that they've seen in the foreseeable future. Which sounds like a thoroughly good system. But the problem with the latest uh, round is that uh, several of the water companies appealed against the off-watt ruling and off-watt was essentially overturned by the Competition Commission. In other words, off-watt is not really in charge of this. It's just a sort of intermediate step for the water companies to say, well, if we don't like this, we'll go to the Competition Commission and we will win our case. Surely that must be one of the problems. If I was off-watt, I would say, well, why am I doing all this? For the record, obviously the appeal they made was actually over the cost of borrowing. Was it over the money they'd been allocated to fix the sewage system? No. Was it over the amount of money they'd been allocated to build reservoirs and desalination plants and secure the water supply for 25 million people? No. It was over the cost of borrowing that Offwat had said should be enough to return reasonable value back to their shareholders. Yeah. Nevertheless, once Offwat's authority has been challenged, the chances of them being allowed to impose the next round are significantly reduced because their authority is clearly damaged. For me, their authority has been clearly damaged decades ago. I mean, I'm, I have to say I'm, I'm a bit with Fergal on this. If you look at the performance of the regulatory agencies since privatisation, the conclusion you have to draw, I think, is that this attempt to balance the interests of the investor, the consumer, and this sort of dynamic regulatory arrangement is incredibly difficult to run. And, and, and all the evidence is, of course, that the water regulators 
who spend almost all their time with the industry and none of their time with the customers, have, of course, come to see the world very much through the eyes of their regulated uh, companies rather than those who they regulate theoretically on behalf of. Neil's a bit more optimistic than me about this. He sort of thinks there is a bit of a change of heart in the industry and, and they're starting to invest a bit more. But I still think you're dragging around this colossal ball of chain, ball and chain of a system that doesn't really work. Well, yes, the, the ball and chain is the debt that the industry has oh, and uh, the debt. has yeah. clocked up. <laughs> That's a symbol of the failure, the regulation. Uh, listen, I'm not defending the current position, which we can all agree is not exactly optimal. Clearly, off what reputation within the industry is bruised, not that it was actually that good in the first place as it transpires. Let, let me turn it round and, and ask you, of the 10 water companies that were privatised, is the one that you would say provides some sort of model for the industry? Oh, no, no, there isn't. As we speak right now, six of the nine English water companies are currently being investigated for what Ofwat and the EA have referred to is widespread, serious non-compliance with the law. And what about the other three? They're, they're no good either. The other three are not off the hook. They just have not been caught yet. yet. <laughs> but when you've got six out of nine under that kind of scrutiny for that kind of serious, widespread non-compliance, you have to ask the question, what the hell was the regulator doing for the last 30 years? Well, what you also have at the moment, I hate to use this expression because it's such a tremendous cliche, but you do have this sort of perfect storm coming together at the same time. First of all, you have this, as you say, this prolonged problem of underinvestment, which has left the sewage system unable to cope with new households coming onto the system. And also you, the whole thing, the whole system that they created was very much propped up. You mentioned earlier the discussion, the debate between Offwat and the water companies about the cost of borrowing was very much propped up on a system where interest rates were declining or staying at very low levels. And of course, all of these things are coming apart. And, and as you've pointed out in your piece, at the same time, you have this prolonged drought over the southeast, which is, of course, intensifying the problem in that particular part of the country. Even if there is some sort of reform, you have to ask yourself whether it's really going to be enough, given the massive sort of challenges they face to get the system back on track. The scale of investment that's probably going to be needed to secure the sewage system and secure water supply for 25 million people. I can see and I do get the sensation that water companies are now scurrying about trying to come up with some kind of structure and plan it, for me, bears no resemblance to anything yet actually looks like a strategy, never mind the plan. And I'm not sure the industry in isolation by itself is going to be in a position to actually finance and raise the money and deliver the scale of investment that's truly going to be needed to solve and secure water supply for 25 million people, never mind actually dealing with repairing and doing something to modernise and bring up to date a sewage waste system that is clearly failing. I think you're right. And we have seen an example of that with the Thames Super Sewer, that Thames Water did not have the financial capacity to be able to fund it itself, which is why it's being done by a separate organisation. But there has been some sort of sea change in the public perception here. I think more people than you think 
have understood that there is a serious problem here. As with all these things, the only way we're going to solve it is actually by paying more for water and clean rivers. This year, there's been so much stuff in the papers. For instance, I don't think that the Mail would have run your piece a couple of years ago. They'd have said, oh, this guy's a nutcase. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's only a bloody superannuated pop singer, you know, and um, <laughs> he's off the, off the pace. But now they think, yeah, he's the sort of guy we want and this is the sort of piece we want to run. I, I, I would like to uh, furiously disagree with the latter part of your assessment, but I really Which can't. Which bit, superannuated or pop star? <laughs> <laughs> The the inference I can give you is, ironically enough, I've spent decades of my life with people randomly walking up to me in the street and wanting to say hello and talk about pop music and have photographs taken and sign autographs and all of that kind of gloriously wonderful stuff. That, over the last two years, has morphed. I've just come away from a week in Cornwall I was stopped in St. Dives by umpteen people, all of them wanting to talk to me about sewage and rivers. Well, there you are. It's a bit of a busman's holiday then. (laughs) (laughs) But it does make my point that the further up the public consciousness this problem gets, the more pressure there is on the water companies actually to take it seriously enough to do something about it. Now, Fergal, you in your article have uh, made a terrifying to the uh, capitalists of uh, West London suggestion that of renationalisation of the whole thing, because they are, in quotes, greedy and useless. <laughs> now, I, Neil's a bit nervous about that sort of idea. He thinks that's a bit going a bit far. There's clearly a case for saying just, just sweep it away. But you, you don't think it's capable of reform? So the suggestion I was putting out there was to adopt a variation on what took place with BT and broadband in this country in the late 1990s, early 2000s, in that you don't nationalise the companies, you nationalise the infrastructure. That does two things, allows the state to make the investment needed in the infrastructure, potentially creating a huge asset, which could then be reprivatised. And equally at the same time, does another little trick where it allows you to actually open up supply of water and sewage treatment to direct competition at a local level. Exactly what happened with broadband, it is owned by BT Wholesale, but it is massively regulated and every other supplier has universal access to that network, which is why to a consumer, you can go online in London and punch in your postcode and ask for broadband and you will get a whole host of companies offering you a broadband connection to the consumer looks like something resembling a functioning market, but it clearly isn't. Because it's only one bloody national network, all owned by BT, with a regulator breathing down their neck 24 hours a day. Well, I think it's a bit of a dream, really. Because, (laughs) well, well, you know, nationalisation costs money anyway. You have to buy out the shareholders. You can't just confiscate it. You might as well, if you want to put the bite on them, say, well, this is the maximum you're allowed to charge. This is what you've got to do. And if you don't do it, we can take back the license for your region. You know, it's just asking for more complexity. And I think it's quite complex well, enough I, I, as it I, is. Hang on, hang on, hang on a second. I don't wholly agree with that. So the way to look at this, I would have thought, is if you nationalise the network, it depends what the terms are. You clearly have to buy it back from the water companies. But effectively, you totally change their business model 
So they cease to be infrastructure companies and they've essentially, it's a way of forcing them to repay all their debts because they can't run with 20 billion or whatever it is of debts <laughs> with no assets. They're basically just customer service businesses at that point. The issue then is, what is the cheapest way of financing the network and its needs? And there's certainly a case for saying that the cheapest, I'm afraid, way, even though you can't basically ultimately bung everything on the taxpayer's balance sheet, is either to do it through the state or to do it through some sort of asset holding company, which really literally has one job in life. It doesn't have need to have a logo and a huge head office and uh, <laughs> but chief that's executives. What it would have. <laughs> you basically just run a very, very simple long-term asset business, which is owned by the state. I think we're all agreed, no matter how <laughs> this gets done, one way or another, is going to be ending up on customers' bills or the and or the taxpayer picking up the tab directly or a variation thereof. I'm not sure about nationalisation. My approach has always been the first thing you've got to do is force them to recapitalise. Your scheme would do that, Fergal. But you possibly could do that while keeping them as listed companies. But I'd certainly sweep away all these foreign kind of private equity investment vehicles that have dominated a lot of the sector. But you can't but, do that. You can't just confiscate it. No, I'm they're, the, they're the owners. No, they're the shareholders. No, put it this way. You can change the terms of their licenses. You can say you have to be a listed company. Why not? It's not confiscating anything. It's just saying you've got to be listed. And that means if you own 100% of it, you have to sell some of it to public shareholders. Well, tough. Yeah, I think that's quite a good idea. Thanks. OK, but I don't want to get stuck in my brilliant ideas. <laughs> I wanted to move things on. <laughs> I think that's what basically is needed right now. It's just a very bit of bold, progressive thinking. Oh, thank you. And all I see going on right now is a repetition of the same circular debate and conversation between regulators and industry that's been going on for 30 years. Yeah, I think we all agree we need a change at the corporate level. But let's talk about us as consumers. I remember years ago where you and I went around the talk streams of Hertfordshire, and you were talking about all the things that we were doing wrong in our own homes. <laughs> I remember back in the 70s when I was a kid, people were told to put a brick in their system during the hot summer of 1976. Uh, we see, ironically enough, we are heading back into it's that 70s again. era again. Ah. In fact, looking at water levels right now, we potentially could be actually heading into another drought within the next few weeks yeah. and months. Yeah. Now, in terms of water and the consumer, I know that in the late 80s through the 90s, it was a big thing within government was giving commercial companies some sort of statutory obligation yeah. to educate and reach out and market to consumers. In the case of the radio industry, radio companies were given a legal obligation to promote DAB radio. And in terms of the water industry, they have a legal obligation to educate their consumers about water consumption. They've done it with the most lackluster laid-back approach that I've seen anybody no, and do anything. It, uh, that's if you've noticed it at all. Well, that, there's my point. Yeah. We do need to do two things. One, the consumer needs a massive prompting to alter their behaviour. For me, we are into the same kind of territory as wear your seatbelt because you're costing the NHS and the taxpayer a massive amount of money every time we have to try and patch you up after a car accident. And while you're all at it, would you all mind terribly stop drinking so much? And now that I come to think of it, can you all please stop smoking? Because again, it's costing the taxpayer a massive fortune trying to fix you all when we should be building schools and employing more doctors and nurses. Yeah, but I mean, seat belts, of course, were compulsory. 
So you would be breaking the law if you didn't wear it. You can't really make water conservation a criminal offence if you fail to do it. Not the least the point I'm making is that we are burdening individual water companies, and I have some empathy for them. I never thought I'd hear you say that. Not sympathy, empathy. (laughs) You can be Mr Reasonable after all. (laughs) Sitting alongside all of that, please do not ever forget that as we speak, water companies currently leak about 3.1 billion litres of water every single day from their own underinvested, disjointed, badly maintained network. So don't criticize your customers, guys. Glass houses, throwing stones. We need both. I think the government could take a lead with the industry as a whole and come up with a national drive and a national campaign to help influence people and their behavior towards water usage. But at the same time, the industry needs to start getting really involved and to dealing with their leaky pipes as any attempt to fix that, quoting the regulator, has basically flatlined for the last five or six years. Two quick questions. One is, should we meter everyone? And secondly, should we have these sort of grey water, I'm not sure how they work, but grey water systems so you don't use clean water to flush the loo, for example? The, the first question, the political pushback was you're then actually uh, possibly disadvantaging some of the less profitable in society by metering everybody. So personally, if there is an issue around affordability, A, I would meter everybody. If there genuinely is an issue around affordability, I can't see why we cannot come up with a fixed rate. Yeah, and beyond that, you have to pay more for it. A progressive tariff. Absolutely. So if Jonathan wants to refill his swimming pool every other afternoon, he's completely happy to do it, but we will charge you £75,000 every time you do it. I'm always watering the pool. I'm a slave to that thing. Grey water systems, it would take nothing more than a change to the building regulations. Well... What that simply means is that the water you use in your dishwasher, clothes washer, in your hand basin all goes into a either in your own house or it could be in the street or in the community reservoir. So the next time you go to do something like water your plants, like wash your clothes, like flush your loo, it actually comes out of this communal system, which was the water you used to wash your hands in yesterday. Yeah, well, afternoon. there's no chance of that at all, except with a new development, you could probably make it. But Changing the setup of a street of houses is that that's a fantasy. Listen, I wasn't suggesting retrofit in the whole country oh, by right. any means. Okay. But I can tell you right now, I recently had a conversation with a big national house builder. As you may or may not know, combi boilers have been banned by 2025. Now, I'm told house builders love the damn things. They're going, we have to put in heat exchangers, heat pumps, we're having to redesign the basic fundamentals of a house. And the question they were asking me was, Fergal, if we have to redesign a house, we would rather take the hit and do both jobs at the same time. Yeah, but if, and how long would it take for 10% of the housing stock to comply with that? About a decade, maybe 15 years? That'd make a massive impact on the amount of water we're consuming. It's a start. We're going to have to deal with this. None of these things in isolation are going to provide a silver bullet. It is going to have to be the classic array and bouquet of individual items. And I have absolutely no doubt, Jonathan, grey water systems are going to be part of that. 
because they already are in the rest of Europe. Okay, well, that's fantastic. I'm going to step in here before Neil comes up with some more reasons why nothing should be done so he can continue on, continue <laughs> grumbling about the lack of action. Uh- <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.